Good morning. My name is Daryl Anderson, and as Gary mentioned, I'm one of the overseers. I have the privilege of opening up God's Word together with you. So I'm rearranging things quickly. But I will say, if you did not get your elements on the way in, um, feel free to do so sometime during the message. You want to get up and stretch, you can get up and walk out and grab what you need, but uh, we'll, we'll go from there. This morning we're continuing in the book of Matthew. Pastor Andy's been teaching on that for a few weeks, and Gary too, one Sunday morning. So we're going to look at the last section of Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to turn to that in your Bibles, you can. Um, this is a series on Jesus as Lord and King, um, King of the whole universe, and we're going to explore that a little bit this morning. But first, let's read the passage here. I'm going to read it out loud, and you can follow along. As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as you can see, this is sort of a bird's-eye view of Jesus' ministry. The last few weeks, we've really touched on specific healings, you know, talked about the blind or the woman who had the flow of blood. So really specific um, times of healing. And, and this is more of a up-above-looking uh, down at Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus spent most of his life in the area of the Sea of Galilee. You can see that map here. Um, the region, really where the northern part, or what we would call northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum and Bethsaida, and those are the, the, the names you hear most often. Um, you go down to more of the south side of the lake, you can see way off to the side, Nazareth, which is only about 15 miles, actually, from the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus spent, you know, the first 30-so years of his life in Nazareth, and then he drifted off and spent most of his ministry in that northern part, dropping down to Jerusalem maybe once or twice a year in those three years of ministry uh, to the temple, and we'll see that. But I would like to actually go up a little bit higher, that's sort of the 50,000-foot view of Jesus' ministry place. Now I would like to go up to the 400,000 light-year view of the ministry of Jesus. Now, I don't know if any of you about three or four weeks ago saw on PBS there was a series of Nova, uh, the, the show Nova, had um, a, a show on the James Webb 
Space Telescope. It's a, it's a great hour if you want take the time to look at that to see the James Wood. So these are some of the photos that are coming down to us now through the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, in these first ones, like I said, were something like 400,000 light years away. Now, that's mind-boggling to me. I think it's mind-boggling to anybody. When you think of light traveling at 186,000 miles a second, that means that if light's circling the Earth, uh, it can go around about seven times in a second. And light going traveling out to the sun or the sunlight coming to us takes eight minutes. So now, you do the math for 400,000 light years away. I, I, like I said, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And the photos coming back, as you can see, are stunning. Seeing galaxies like ours, but different galaxies, you know, thousands and thousands of galaxies and solar systems of that... Um, it's just absolutely incredible. Now, what's also incredible to me is the fact that if you talk to two astrophysicists, one would say, look at all these facts, look at all these photos. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his craftsmanship. So this one astrophysicist, all the same facts, all the same photos, is seeing God's immense creativity. And then on the other hand, there's the astrophysicist that says, all of this came out of an explosion. And in faith, this is a real tough one, in faith that astrophysicist would say that you know, way back, billions of years ago, all of this came out of nothing. I mean, something, you have to have a great deal of faith to say something, matter, came out of nothing. And not only did it come out of nothing, it exploded in such a way and total chaos as, a, as an explosion would be, but out of that explosion came incredible order and, and an incredible universe. Well, obviously two different perspectives on what's going on there. And, the, you know, the problem is, is when we um, talk about expanding our senses, and really the James Webb Space Telescope, it's just an expansion of our, our sight, in a simple way to put it. And so when we expand our sight, you know, the Hubble expand our sight, now expand our sight, the expansion of our sight, while they're hoping to expand their understanding of maybe where this all came from, it really can't do that. Um, ext extending our ability to see does not answer the key questions in life. And these are the key questions. These questions, as you can see, extending our ability to the, for the universe will not answer five basic questions about life that everybody that lives on this planet asks at one point in their life. I've had the privilege of being in many different countries of the world and the same five questions come up. In fact, the same five questions have been 
sought after or tried, tried to answer by all the great uh, philosophers, Aristotle, Pluto, Plato, Pluto, Plato, and others, obviously, from thousands of years until the day. And those questions are, where did life begin? You know, was it a Big Bang? Was it God? But where did life begin? The next one is a little bit more difficult, but why is there evil in this world? All of us understand that there's evil in our own hearts that we don't measure up. It's hard to understand why there's so much wars and rumors of wars and things going around. That, that question of evil constantly comes up. And then if, after that question is how do we overcome evil? How do we overcome evil in our own life? How do we overcome evil in the world we live in? Third or fourth is what is the purpose of life? Which is probably the most difficult ones for an atheist or non-believer to answer because the answer is always quite sobering. There's no purpose in life. We're a speck of dust that comes and goes and has no meaning and ultimately has no further existence. But then that begs the question of what happens after death. When we die, do we just go back into the dust or is there something more? Now, the problem is these five questions cannot be answered by searching the material world. They're questions that only God can answer. They have to come from an outside source, the creator. The material world doesn't help us. The, the material world, the universe, can point us in the right direction that there is a God, you can say, because of the created order and all this being. You'd say, well, how could that not be God doing that? But it doesn't give the answer to these five basic questions that are asked. Um, that only comes from God. Now, let me read. A, I want to read, and you can just listen as I read a passage of the scripture. This is a book of Luke. Book of Luke, I guess. Book of Hebrews and the first chapter. And listen to the words of our Lord in that, speaking through his author. Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers, through the prophets in various streams and even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. But now, in these days, the days of Jesus, just after, he has spoken to us through his Son, to whom he has given everything, and through whom he made the world and everything there is. God's Son shines out with God's glory, and all that God's Son is and does makes him as God. He regulates the universe by the mighty power of his command. He is the one who died to cleanse us and clear our record of all sin and that set now on the highest honor beside the great God of heaven. That starts answering these questions. And I'm just going to read one more passage in Colossians. And this is, again, Colossians first chapter, chapter 1, verses 15. Christ 
is the exact likeness of the unseen God. He exists before. He existed before God made everything at all, or anything at all. And in fact, Christ himself is the creator who made everything in heaven and earth. All things we can see and the things we can't, the spirit's world with its kings and kingdoms and rulers and authorities, all were made by Christ for his own use and glory. He was before all else began, and it is in his power that holds everything together. That gives you an idea of the glorious Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, who was, before the beginning of the world, created the world. God created the world for his Son, and then sent him down to communicate with us. That's how we can answer those five questions. Where did life begin? And a biblical answer is here. Um, I might add, because I know some of the high school and junior high people are talking about in their class, a worldview. You hear periodically this concept of a worldview. And there's a secular worldview, and there is a Christian worldview. And actually, how you answer those first five questions really develops your worldview. And and that really determines how you view everything in, in this world. So a Christian worldview um, is given by God alone in the scriptures that God created in the heavens and the earth through Christ Jesus, that there was a fall, that evil entered the world through man and continues on, and that we have not lost hope in that evil because we have a Redeemer, a Savior in Jesus Christ who brings us out and protects us and delivers us from that evil. The fourth question and answer is, uh, what's the purpose of life? And God makes that very clear through the scriptures that our purpose in life is to, as one Bible teacher put it, to know God and to make him known. I'd like to add here, too, it's, it's interesting, I mean, God put those questions, the first questions, in the hearts of men. They, they didn't, you might say, didn't come out of their own thinking necessarily. In, when God created us, we read in Genesis that God created us in his image. We're created in the image of God. But what does that mean? Well, there's two, uh, there's a number of things that that means actually, but there's two primary ones when we say we're created in the image of God. The first one is that like God who is love, we were created with the ability to love. And that's the primary purpose we were created with the ability to love so that we can love God and so that we can receive God's love. And that, that's amazing, obviously, and that pours out into all of our ability to love our our friends, family, etc. But the primary reason we were cre- created in that community was so that we can love God and that God can show his love for us. The second purpose of, or I, I should say the second area that we're created in the image of God is that of the ability to think of the eternal. In in. Ecclesiastes 3, we read the verse that it says that God put eternity in our hearts. 
So in a sense, God put those questions on. We have to ask the questions. What about eternity? What happened before? What happens after? We're built to ask those questions, and everybody in the world does. Now, when you answer the questions in a secular worldview, if you answer the world was created out of chaos, uh, the evil just comes out of that chaos, what's the mission and purpose in life? There's no mission. There's no purpose in life. You live, you die, and that's it. And then, of course, there's no end, there's no creation. You know, that kind of worldview, as it develops more, you can understand, as it develops, more and more people go, in a sense, into despair. Why do I exist? It doesn't matter. Bad place to live. Take my life. I don't know. So it's either in despair or it goes into hedonism. Hedonism says, you know, we're here for a few years. Let's make the most out of it. I'll eat, drink, be merry because then I'm gone. So I'm just going to make the most uh, out of my life. So somebody is caught in that, you might say, in that despair, that not understanding where you're going in the world, and that um, is where Jesus calls the people that are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd, in despair, not knowing which way to go. I want to switch now. Bring us back down to our bird's eye view of the world. So we're coming back down from the universe and coming back to, to our bird's eye view of the universe where Jesus ministered. And, and you see this? I'd like to explain this a little bit more. I, that's my personal joy is to look at maps and to understand more of you know, the life and work of Jesus and where he was. Um, like I mentioned, he's a little bit north or ministered a lot in Capernaum in that area in Bethsaida where the disciples basically lived and grew up, came down from Nazareth. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And I think most of you know we wouldn't use that term. We would use probably the term the Lake of Galilee. Um, actually, the, the Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, by Wisconsin standards, is a large lake. Uh, it's smaller by uh, a couple miles wide and half the length of um, the... Uh, Lake Winnebago, so it's, it's smaller than Lake Winnebago, the largest lake in Wisconsin here. And as a matter of fact, so it's about eight miles. You can actually swim across the Lake Galilee. It takes a little bit over three hours. They have races every year where people swim across the Sea of Galilee. Um, it takes a little over three hours. Now, I'm not sure how long it would take to actually walk across the lake of Galilee. We know that's been done before, but we don't know the timing on how long it was that that, that person was able to walk across uh, that lake. So that's where Jesus worked and lived, and, the, and, and it's amazing that uh, when we think of all that transpired after the, the, the king of the universe, the creator of the universe became flesh and dwelt 33 years 
basically just in this small area. You see Nazareth over there. It's about 15 miles, like I said, from the Sea of Galilee. So he spent a lot of time there. Now we're going to jump back to our verse. Um, and jump into, I think we have it here, good. Verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, which we were just seeing, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, first Jesus went into the synagogues. The synagogues were buildings, little you might say, meeting houses that were built by Jews in any city where there was a number of Jews, whether it be in what's present-day Israel or outside, and the synagogues were built. And they were built for a primary reason. One is a gathering place for Jews in the community, but the second reason was to hold the scriptures. And Gary, a few weeks ago, if you're here, talked about the scriptures um, at that time were scrolls, you know, they were copied onto parchment paper, very expensive and very time-consuming. So, you know, obviously not everybody had their own scrolls. There were very few, but they would always have them in the synagogue. So when Jesus was going around teaching, he would go into the synagogues. That's where he would open up the scriptures and teach out of the scriptures, showing how the scriptures related to him and then ultimately the good news of the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming here on earth. And then it says, in healing every disease and affliction. This is an interesting passage. We went through a number of, uh, said mentioned previously, the Matthew, you know, seven, eight, six, seven, eight verses that talk about a lot of individual healings. Now it's this big view. Jesus is just healing every disease and affliction. And, and it's interesting if you read the, Last paragraph in the Gospel of John, you'll read the section that says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said or did, there wouldn't be enough books and enough libraries to hold all that he did. And this, this gives you a glimpse of that. I mean, he's going to thousands of, of people and towns and healing throughout that. So it's, it's amazing. And then... It says that healing, so he's teaching, he's proclaiming the kingdom, and then he is healing and showing people that he is the Lord and the, able to accomplish you know, miraculous things because the creator of the universe can do that. Now I'm going to skip to our next verse. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees these people. He sees that they're being harassed by the Roman government. They're being harassed by their uh, religious leaders. Unsure of what's going on. As you, re uh, you might remember the last verse right before these verses, the Pharisees say that Jesus is doing these miracles by Satan's work, evil work, not by God. So these people are getting all sorts of conflicting information, confusing, and harassment, and Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Now I want to focus a little bit on that word, he had compassion for them. Pastor Andy talked about compassion the last couple of weeks. It, it was, it's amazing. Compassion in this context is 
an emotion that goes beyond empathy or sympathy. It's an emotion within you that dwells up that means you have to do something about the problem that you're seeing. Now, Jesus uses this same word when he talks about the Good Samaritan. He's, the Good Samaritan saw the um, man on the side of the road that was beaten and bloody and needed help. And it says, the Good Samaritan saw him and had compassion. In other words, he saw the plight that he was in and he had to do something. And of course, he did something. And that's what Jesus is seeing here. He's seeing compassion. He has to do something. Now, we know the something he did was twofold, and we'll talk about one of those things in just a few minutes. But the compassion that burned in him the most was the compassion of our life and salvation. And obviously that compassion led him to the cross to ultimately die and pay the penalty for our sins. And I'd like to take the break now to, not really a break, but to move to a time of communion service as we remember that compassion that Jesus had for us and has for us even today. And that's why he left us with the remembrance of him through the bread and the cup so that we would not forget and have a tangible way to remind ourselves of his compassion and love for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, take, eat, in remembrance of me, for this is my body broken for you. So let's do that. Take and eat and give thanks to Jesus for his ultimate sacrifice prompted by his compassion and love for us. Next, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my new relationship with you. My blood will be shed so that you can join in relationship with me on both a personal level and an actual connection with me through my Holy Spirit. So Jesus calls us to take the cup, the blood of the new covenant, the new relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Take, drink, in remembrance of him. Father, we are grateful that you sent your son, the very image of you that we can see here on earth through your scriptures and through our relationship with him that provides purpose and meaning in our life and gives us the ability and the privilege 
of walking with you not only now, but in the ages to come. Amen. Okay, I want to jump back into our last section that we see, and I think that you'll see where it draws. It says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. My guess is a number of you have heard this passage before and are, are familiar with it. A lot of missions pass. You know, if there's a missions conference. You, you hear that passage a lot. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. But take note. He said, then he said to his disciples. So he, he's calling his disciples close by to him. And it's to his disciples that he says, harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, if we were continuing this Matthew series, we would go to Matthew 10, 1. Next week, we're, not, we're shifting gears a little bit here, but... If you go to Matthew 10.1, the interesting thing in Matthew 10.1, and, the, and the, what I wonder, and I'm going to add some of my own words here, in 10.1, Jesus calls his disciples back to himself and says, hey, the harvest is plentiful. Have you been praying for harvesters? And, oh, yeah, yeah. Who have you been praying for? Well, Matthew might have said, well, Matthew, Matthew said, I'm praying for John to go out. Or Peter's saying, well, I'm praying for James to go out. Or, or whatever like that. Um, you know, send somebody else. Now, Jesus says, okay, you've been praying for one another. That's what I asked you to do. Now I'm sending you out into the harvest field. So in that sense, I don't know if any of you have ever prayed that prayer and said, okay, Lord, send out laborers into the harvest field. Beware. Um, you might be the ones called out, and you will be the ones actually called out. That's the amazing thing about the Lord. So that's in chapter 10, and you go, didn't one have that? The 12, oh, my very efficient slide projector up there put an extra one in there. So that's chapter 10, one goes out. Appreciate that. So we're all called to be laborers in the labor field. And I want to give an example in the last few minutes that we have here about one laborer and one person ready for be, to be harvested. This has to do, this story is about Joe Brown. And Joe Brown was a mentor of mine. Actually, Joe and Grace, Grace was his wife, were mentors of, for Carol and myself. Um, when we were just married, before kids, uh, entering seminary, Joe was a professor. Him and his wife took us into their home. And every week we met with them to have uh, supper and to talk about the things of the kingdom, to talk about family life, and just discuss, you know, what's going on in our lives together, in our lives at school, or our lives with a family. And so... It, it was an incredible time. Uh, we stayed friends with Joe and Grace through our whole life. 
In fact, Joe died a number of years ago. Grace died just a few years ago, and as she was in her last couple of weeks of life, she called my Carol, my wife, to come out and spend uh, one of those last weeks with her and Carrie, and, and Carol had the privilege to do that, uh, to spend that time uh, with her. Um, but I want to talk about Joe. Joe was an interesting fellow. Uh, the first thing I'd say about Joe is he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, brilliant. I'm not being uh, exaggerating here or hyperbole. This guy was brilliant, and I'll give you an, an idea how brilliant he was. Uh, went through high school, straight A's, thought, what am I going to do now? Says, I'll be a doctor. So where does he apply to go to school? Harvard Medical School. If you're going to be a doctor, why not be the best? Why not go to the number one university in the country? So he's accepted into Harvard as a medical school in the pre-med program. Uh, went through four years at Harvard pre-med. Graduated valedictorian of his class. So number one student, number one university, and one of the hardest subject matters that the school has to offer. Brilliant. As a matter of fact, John F. Kennedy was in his graduating class and sat in the audience when he was giving his <laughs> speech, valedictorian speech. But anyway, but there was a problem, Joe. As brilliant as he was, he was starting to struggle with question number four, What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? His brilliant mind could not answer that question. And that was leading him into a type of depression, questioning life, questioning purpose, questioning why he was even at Harvard or should go on with medical school. And so, you know, he was <clears throat> questioning that. It was building up in him. And uh, after graduation, he was taking a train down to Florida where his family lived. And I think about that, you know, he's on that train, he's wondering, I always wondered, um, a guy who didn't know the Lord, had some Christian background, how would you approach him if you knew his background, if you knew how brilliant he was? Would you want to be the one that started talking to him about Jesus and stuff? He probably has three reasons uh, against every one reason you'd bring up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but anyway, you know, he he was uh, God was working in his heart, causing him this consternation. And on the way down to Florida, a young lady got on the train, and she came into his booth where he was sat down, they introduced themselves, and after a while she realized by his countenance and some of the things he was saying that he was not in a good state of mind. And so they talked for a while, and then she said three words that absolutely changed his life direction. Along the way, she said, Joe, you need Jesus. <laughs> That's all she said. You need Jesus. And then, not too long after that, she actually got off the train, and Joe never was able to catch up with her. 
Those three words transformed Joe's mind. He knew he needed Jesus. That's all that the Lord needed was one harvester to be bold and say, you need Jesus. Transformed Joe's mind. He didn't go back to pre-med, or he didn't go back to medical school. He actually did go back to Harvard University and got a PhD in theology uh, at that time and became a professor of theology. And uh, as I mentioned, a mentor of ours changed our lives for the better um, and did amazing things for the kingdom because of one faithful harvester that was willing to say, you need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the Lord of the universe. You know our minds, our hearts. You know the minds and hearts of everyone on this earth that you provide uh, both the questions and the answers. But Father, we know the field is ripe under harvest because you have implanted in people's hearts and minds that quest for the eternal and to be loved. Father, help us as harvesters to go out and be sensitive to your spirit, uh, Father, to be bold in just uh, our simple proclamations of your lordship and our need uh, for you, and we can entrust you for the results. So we thank you for that. We thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you for the privilege of celebrating, uh, Father, life and you together in Jesus' name.